Hello, Grace Point. It is so good to see you this morning. We're so glad you're here. Whether this is your first time or your like 500th time, we are just so glad to see you, whether you're in Nashville or anywhere else in the world or the United States, we're just so glad that you're here today. Um, we're we're going to jump into the sermon in just a bit, but I wanted to take just a minute to talk again, once again, about what happened in the last week. You know, lots of us, um, as this the virus is, the numbers are coming down a bit, and as vaccines are rolling out, that we're, spring is springing, uh, we're beginning to start having some hope for lack of a better term, for some sort of normal normalcy to come back. Um, but one of the problems with that is we're also bringing back a lot of normal that we that should never have been normal to begin with. This week, uh, we had another, actually, we had several, there were several, I think maybe seven events between um, last week and today, which is, um, which is Wednesday, when I recorded the sermon. Uh, and the main one that's catching a lot of the news is 10 people killed in a supermarket in Colorado. And we're just in the same destructive pattern of, oh, thoughts and prayers. That's so tragic, but no real meaningful action. And often it are, it's people who identify as Christian, who cling so tightly to their guns that they, they can't see that the, the way we're running the world, the way we're running our country, it's causing death and pain and suffering for so many people. Gun reform now really should be a Christian mantra. We come from the Hebrew prophets who long for swords to be beaten into plowshares. We come from Jesus who taught to live by the sword is also to die by the sword. This should not be among Christians a, a polarizing issue to say that we have a gun problem and a violence problem in this country and we need to do something about it. We need change. We need to stop talking about change. We need real change. And right here in Tennessee, we're dealing with um, laws that would make open carry without permit. And it's just, it's complete and utter insanity. I can promise you more guns in a room do not make that room more safe. It's just insane. It's just insane. And so we, we have, like there's a certain point where we have to begin to reach out, use our voices, use our votes, and really begin to hold our, our leaders' feet to the fire until we get something done. Because the way things are going, we, we are living by the sword and we are dying by the sword. Um, so as we move into Holy Week together, the, the last week of Jesus' life, we're also moving into it with this hope and optimism of what, where things may be going with the pandemic and also this grief knowing that, that not only these 10 people, but other people um, in the last week also were victims of senseless gun violence in the United States of America in 2021. We're not helpless. Um, we could do something about it. Um, and today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day that begins Holy Week. The, if you're new to the Christian tradition, it's the last week of Jesus' life in the Gospels. Um, in the tradition, the Gospels report on this particular day, Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey with his followers celebrating and making a lot of commotion. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a protest peace march. It's, it's a lampoon. It's kind of poking fun at the way Roman generals and Roman governors and Caesars would enter a city with all of their war horses armed to the teeth, a show of power and force. And here comes Jesus riding on a donkey with his followers, many of whom, probably most of whom were from the peasant class, celebrating the kingdom of God, coming into Jerusalem with this sense among his followers that the kingdom is coming, we're gonna do this, it's gonna be, it's happening right now in our own time. 
in place. Jesus enters Jerusalem. He ends up spending the entire week in uh, confrontation with the temple authorities and the temple establishment. And let's be very clear, not he doesn't stay in conflict all week with the Jewish people. He stays in conflict with the temple establishment. And the temple establishment, known as the Sadducees, were collaborators with the Roman Empire. They essentially would, would work with Rome and, and help Rome get what Rome needed done. Um, and it benefited them financially. They were some really, really incredibly wealthy people. But the temple, the place, as Jesus says, when he goes into the temple on Monday of Holy Week and he runs out all the money changers, he says, this is a, a place of prayer for the nations. You've turned it into a den of, a den of robbers, a den of thieves. Uh, a den is not where thieves go and do their thieving. A den is where they hide. And so Jesus is saying this place, which should be a place of, of refuge for people, has become a place where when you go and pillage the widow and the poor and you come back to this place, you're using it as a cover for your actions. And so this is, Jesus is really, really poking at a lot of things here. And ultimately he's going to be crucified because of this on Friday. And that's the part of the story I want to focus on today. I want to talk about the death of Jesus. I want to focus on the crucifixion. And my experience as a pastor whose faith unraveled on the job in real time, uh, there were three events that I dreaded more than anything on the calendar year. The first was Christmas. I dreaded Christmas, not because I don't like Christmas, but because I, I had to say things that I didn't know about Christmas. Or I was going to try to say things and I couldn't say maybe what they wanted. Uh, Good Friday was another one. And then Easter. Easter weekend was rough as a pastor in the middle of my, my faith shift. Um, and I, I say I dreaded it because I just didn't know what to say about them. I didn't know what I believed about them. I knew I didn't believe sort of what I'd been taught, but I hadn't gone any, I, I, like, the journey was still very much happening for me. And, but I knew that there were people who were coming to church that those days who knew what they should hear and they knew what they expected. They expected certain things to be said about them and I just couldn't say them. And, and even today, my process is very much so like all of us probably, or, or a good many of us, I'm still very unfinished, but I'm really grateful to be at a place where I have some things to say about these events. I have some things to say about the crucifixion. The, the cross was central to the early Christian communities. Paul was the earliest New Testament writer. He wrote some of his earliest stuff in the 50s, and he had a two-word phrase that summed up his message about Jesus. Actually, there were two, two, there were two phrases. If you wanted to summarize Paul's message in a tweet or a bumper sticker, you could get two, two that said this. One would say, Christ crucified, and the other would say, Jesus is Lord. Christ crucified, Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord is what some people call the earliest Christian creed. Um, and for Paul, those two statements, Christ crucified, Jesus is Lord, encapsulated his message about Jesus. Listen to what he writes in Galatians 6.14. May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never, like that's an interesting language. May I not boast about anything but the cross. We'll come back to that. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, the word world here, it's the word in Greek cosmos, and it can mean order, arrangement, universe. But here, think of it in terms of a system. What Paul's saying, like the way the world works. Man, I never boasted anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the system has been crucified to me and I to the system. Paul, Paul says the cross is about dying to the way things are, and then I would assume being raised as a result, being raised into a new way of being, into a new way of relating, into a new way of seeing. 
In 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says, we proclaim Christ crucified. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's, that's forceful language. That's some strong statement. Listen to those words. I, I came and I, I resolved to know nothing except. I had one message. When I showed up to town, I had one message. Christ crucified. Like it's a one point sermon for Paul. And if you combine that with Jesus as Lord, those two sum up pretty much everything he, he essentially thought about Jesus and what it meant to be a part of this early developing community around Jesus. So since it was central to the early Christians and, and it's been central to Christians since, I think we should have a conversation about it. And I want to talk about the cross today, the death of Jesus from two different lenses. The first lens is I want to talk about the cross as a historical event, something that happened in history. And then I want to talk about the theological meaning of the cross. The cross is a theological event. Um, and, and so I want to try to approach those two. But both of them are important because without the historical event, we would not have a theology of cross, right? Like the, the theology piece of it rests on the idea that something happened, that Jesus was crucified. Um, and, and the question I want to ask is, why did Jesus die? both historically and theologically. Why did Jesus die? And that's going to kind of guide where we go. So first, why did Jesus die? I want to talk about the cross as an historical event. Before Jesus' death was part of any theology, before any atonement theories had been developed, it was an event that happened in human history. It's fascinating. Scholars of almost all types and stripes, conservatives and liberals, almost all scholars, there are a few outliers who try to make other arguments, but most scholars believe agree on two things. One, that Jesus lived. He was a real person in human history. And two, Jesus died by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. Those are two events that virtually all scholars, reputable scholars, will agree with. But why? Why did Jesus die? Not theologically, we'll get to that. Why did Jesus die? And the truth is that historically, Jesus' death wouldn't have been all that remarkable, right? Under the Roman Empire, crucifixions were expected. You just, they were a regular sight to behold. It was something that was familiar to people. The Jewish historian Josephus records that in response to an uprising at the death of Herod the Great, so around 4 BCE, around the time Jesus would have been born, just shortly after or right around the time Jesus would have been born, there was a revolt when Herod died. And as a result, a Roman general named Varus was was sent to sent his troops to put down the rebellion. Here's what Josephus writes. But Varus sent a part of his army into the country against those that had been authors, the authors of this commotion. As they caught great numbers of them, those that appeared to have been least concerned in these tumults, he put into custody. But such as were the most guilty, he crucified. Before I get to the end. So if he thought they weren't really involved, they were just kind of, he would arrest them. But the people who were really the instigators of this revolt, he crucified. And listen to this. There, these were in number about 2,000. 2,000 Jewish rebels crucified at one time. And just imagine that sight. 2,000 crosses. People being crucified everywhere. Josephus also writes about the revolt in 70 CE that the Gospels sort of warn against. 
that led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Here's what he writes. So the soldiers, out of wrath and hatred they bore the Jews, nailed those they caught one after one way and another after another to the crosses by way of jest when their multitude was so great that room was wanting for the crosses and crosses wanting for the bodies. I mean, this is absolutely cruel. He says the Roman soldiers with such hatred, they nailed the, the, the captured rebels to the crosses in different positions just to see who could do the most like, creative crucifixion. And then, then he says that there were so many people being crucified. They didn't have enough space for the crosses and enough crosses for the bodies. So crucifixion wouldn't have been like an odd scene. It would have been a scene that many, many people were really familiar with. Crucifixion was public terrorism. It was one of the ways that Rome could keep people in line. It was meant to terrify the population. It was meant to send a message. If you step out of line, if you resist Rome, if you revolt against Roman authority, this is what will happen to you. Jesus' crucifixion uh, on that Friday in whatever year it happened, sometime around the year 30, it would have been another, people walking by would have said, there's another failed would-be king. There's another would-be Messiah. There's another person who resisted Rome and has met their death. It would have been a common, terrifying, but common scene. And it's really important to note, historically, Rome did not crucify Jesus because they knew it had to be done to fulfill some sort of plan of salvation. They, they didn't kill Jesus also because he taught about peace and love uh, or how to go to heaven when you die. I mean, so much about the way we've come to tell the Jesus story makes his death inexplicable, right? Oh, he said, love people. And he, he taught people to share their food. And he taught people to, to, to care about their enemies. And he told people how to go to heaven when they die. And they just killed him because they knew Jesus had to die. Nope, that's not, that's not, that's not what we can say historically. Historically, we can say that Jesus was killed by the Romans. And we have to begin to ask why. Uh, one of the things I've heard a lot of people say, especially when they want to sort of maybe a sermon you've given or something you've posted is sort of weaving into the political. And by the way, can we just be honest? Everything is political. Everything is political. It just is. Politics are about how we order our common life, how the world gets run. Religion, politics, economics, it is all, and they knew this in Jesus' day, it is all inextricably connected together. And we try to sort it out. It is a myth of the modern world. It cannot be sorted out. So when people say, Jesus didn't tell Caesar how to run Rome, the problem with that statement is that he actually did. Um, not only did he advocate for a different kind of society, he announced the presence of an alternative kingdom. And Caesar didn't like competition, right? Think about Jesus' message. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, change your heart and mind, and trust this good news that this kingdom is here. Jesus' message was about the kingdom of God, kingdom is a political term. It's about how you run the world. And notice this in Mark 15, Mark, the earliest writer uh, of, a, of a gospel. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified Jesus. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now, this is sort of a, a giving people some understanding, some context for why this person is being hung on this cross. And king of the Jews this is, they're not saying Jesus is the king. They're saying this is, this is a person who thought that there was any king but Caesar. This is a person who thought that there was another kingdom that should have precedence over the kingdom of Rome. When this is hanging over Jesus' head, he's being accused of treason. 
he's being accused of claiming uh, another kingdom and another king, right? And, and notice the people crucified with him, uh, Mark 15, and they and with him, they crucified two bandits, one on his right, one on his left. We probably, many of us know the stories that, as they get developed in the gospels about the thieves who were crucified next to Jesus. Um, and that's the language we use. Either here it's in, in RSV, it's bandits. I think King James says thieves. The problem is the, the actual language, the Greek word is lestes, and it actually means something more akin to an insur insurrectionist, like a rebel, a revolutionary, a freedom fighter. So the people being crucified with Jesus are being crucified for resisting Roman power. It stands to reason Jesus in the middle with the king of the Jews placard above his head is being accused of advocating a different kingdom and resisting Roman power. The charge here is treason. Jesus is being executed as someone who's committed treason against the empire, albeit nonviolently, right? J Jesus is clearly throughout the gospels advocating for nonviolence. And yet the threat he posed was so great that Rome had to kill him. That's the level of threat they felt from his movement. He challenged Roman authority. He challenged Rome's monopoly on the world. He challenged the way Rome carved up and ran the world. And he even was so bold and daring that he offered a different vision, an alternative vision for what the world could be if God's will were actually done on earth as it is in heaven. And he did that through mass feedings, right? Like if we share our food, everybody has enough. He did that through healings right, where he brought people who had been previously left out of the community because of whatever illness they had, and he brings them in, and he presents them as whole and as clean. Jesus is just messing. He's upsetting the, the turnip truck. I think that's, that's a phrase. He's in the middle of resisting and pushing back against the greatest, up at that point, the greatest empire the world had ever known. And Rome's response to Jesus to his vision of the world, to his vision of the kingdom, was Rome met him with an emphatic no, and they nailed him on the cross. Right? That's, that's the story. Jesus presented an alternative kingdom and an alternative vision for what the world could be, and Rome rejected Jesus's vision, and they nailed him to a cross. Historically, we can say this. Jesus dies at the hands of the Romans because of his vision, message, and enactment of the kingdom of God. It wasn't just what he was envisioning or what he was saying. It was what he was doing, breaking down barriers, break, break, breaking down all these lines and boundaries that the society had in place for who was included and who was excluded and who could eat with whom. And Jesus is upsetting all of that. And he dies on a Roman cross. It is interesting, though, how the cross has become and became very early on for the first Christians. It, became a, it was a symbol of failure and defeat, but somehow really early on in the story, it was transformed into a symbol of hope, victory, and love. What does it take for an instrument of death and torture to become a channel of life and peace? There's a British artist named Paul Fryer um, who I uh, became aware of several years ago. He created a sculpture of Jesus that he called Pieta. Pieta is pity in Latin. And there are all sorts of artistic works, many sculptures, mostly sculptures of um, the, called this Pieta. And it usually has Mother Mary, Jesus's mother, holding her son's lifeless body after he's been taken down from the cross. And it's just, just this tragic, tragic scene. Paul Fryer created a, a sculpture um, titled Pieta and it's of Jesus in an electric chair. I wanna put it on the screen. It's, it's shocking to see and yet I, I hope it gives us a bit of a picture of 
what happened to Jesus and what had to happen for his followers to adopt the cross as the defining symbol of their movement. Imagine seeing people today that are wearing gold chains or chains with crosses on them. Imagine seeing them with an electric chair dangling from their neck. We would just say that's bizarre, that's absurd. Why in the world, how in the world? And yet for these first Christians, that became the defining symbol of their movement. This idea that this, this instrument of torture and suffering and failure, the failed mission of Jesus, becomes a symbol of hope and peace and compassion and love in the world. How did that transformation happen? And when we start asking that question, like we're, we're beginning to get into why did Jesus die and theologically? What does the cross mean theologically? Then the cross is dependent on two things. Uh, the theological uh, meaning of the cross is dependent on two things. One is the life of Jesus. Now, it's unfortunate that almost all of the Christian creeds jump from Jesus's birth to his death and leave out the part that makes any of it matter. All right, the reason Jesus matters, the reason the cross matters is because of the life Jesus lived, because of who he was, because of the way he loved and gave himself away to the people around him, right? That, that Jesus, I mean, we get these images of Jesus as a healer, as Jesus as a boundary breaker and all of these, no, no matter what you believe about how many things are literal in the gospels, these were images of Jesus that have existed in Christian memory, that Jesus was this kind of person. He was a person who brought healing to people. He was a person who transcended boundaries. So Jesus' life gives meaning to the cross. But also, the second thing is the Easter experience. Without the Easter experience, we probably wouldn't know who Jesus was. Maybe he would be a footnote in history. Maybe he would be some, maybe, maybe Josephus would have said, hey, there was this guy and this thing happened and it's over. Whatever the Easter experience was, and that's a fun conversation, but whatever Easter means, whatever it was, it changed something for these first followers of Jesus. It changed the way they saw the cross, the way they interpreted what happened. And since, since year one, right, since uh, in 30, let's say Jesus died, Christians have been wrestling with what does the cross mean and what did it accomplish? Because it feels like something happened with the cross. And we've concocted atonement theories that end up making God look like a feudal Lord or an abusive parent and not the God we meet in Jesus, right? Some of our atonement theories like penal substitution turn God into a monster and Jesus is God's victim. Um, how many of us have been indoctrinated with this idea that God needs satisfaction for the offense of human sin? And so God decides to take all of God's wrath and anger at sin and hatred of sin out on Jesus and Jesus bears our suffering so that God can somehow forgive us and love us and accept us. That's, that's not a good, that's not good news. That's not good news. Good news is not that, well, God was angry and, and had hatred and so much wrath for you, but he took it out on somebody else. So that's, that's okay. So let me just say this at the front end theologically, the cross isn't something God demanded or needed. God did not need Jesus to die, to love you, to embrace you, or to forgive you. It, it's just not in the character and nature of the God we see in Jesus. But God doesn't need sacrifice. And Jesus said as much when he quotes the prophets who say, I want mercy, not sacrifice. God doesn't need anything to be killed to love us, embrace us, or forgive us. 
I mean, think about, I mean, for, for us, we just went through the series, What is Progressive Christianity? We talked about inherent union with God. We are born into the world, not disconnected from God. We are born united with God. We are one with God. And yes, guilt and shame and all those things will send us into hiding. And yet it's not that God can't come near us. It's that we want to hide. And yet God, just like in the Genesis 3 story, God shows up in the garden and pursues and invites like we're, we're, the problem, what we're trying to do here is not make peace with God. It's not, it's not that we're trying to somehow get God to love us. What, what we're trying to do, what, what's happening in this is we're being invited to see it. We are being invited to see it. Very early on, Jesus' followers began to attempt to articulate what happened at the cross. This wasn't just, it was, but it, it was a tragic event, but it wasn't just a tragic event. And after Easter, they begin to reframe the death of Jesus to see that something larger was going on. They begin to see that God somehow was present and somehow God was up to something through that moment. It really shouldn't surprise us that they tried to explain Jesus' death through the lens that they had been given. And that is the lens of first century Judaism. It was the lens of sacrifice. The sacrificial system was familiar. The sacrificial system was understood. They, they, it made sense. This is how peace is made with the God, with gods. This is what you do. Everybody in the world at that point kind of knew sacrifice was how you do this. So it shouldn't surprise us that that's where they went, where they begin to see Jesus as some sort of sacrifice. Later in the Greco-Roman world, Christians would try to explain Jesus in, in language and lenses that resembled more like Platonic philosophy than first century Judaism, right? They, they were Christians living in a particular time and place, and they used what was familiar, and they began to talk about big words like homoousius, and how many natures did Jesus have, and like, what is the Trinity, and is it, does the Trinity have like God at the top, and then Jesus and the Spirit, or is it Jesus and God and Spirit? Like, this has all happened throughout generations of Christian history, with people using the lenses they'd been given. It ha happened in the 1000s with Anselm, who came up with satisfaction theory, which somewhat morphed into penal substitution where he's in a feudal society and he assumes God is a feudal Lord who's, who's, who's uh, besmirched honor needs satisfaction. We shouldn't be surprised that people were using the lenses and metaphors of their day to describe this. What else could they do? What else could they do? They weren't transported to some other time and place, given an objective seat from which to look at what had happened and say, Oh, this is exactly what was going on. And we aren't either. We are still in so many ways, doing the same thing with our lenses and trying to be aware of them and trying to rethink and reframe and reimagine. And yet we are all somewhat, our subjectivity um, means that we don't have the final say, we don't have the final word on this. I honor the experiences of our spiritual ancestors. And, and I honor this idea that in the death of Jesus, something about the nature of God was disclosed to us. We see something of God that's, that's why that language that on the cross in God, Christ in God was doing a certain thing. But I don't always embrace their explanations. I don't believe God requires blood or violence to bring wholeness or peace. That's actually a Roman approach. That's not a God approach. That's not a Jesus approach. This idea that we can bring peace by, by winning. We can bring peace by inflicting the most damage. We can bring peace by wounding and harming someone else. I mean, that is Every single empire in the world throughout history has used that, that path, the path of violence, if we can just kill our way to peace. But it's not possible. You cannot use violence to bring wholeness. You cannot use violence to bring peace. And, and so I, I think 
yes, we honor their experiences, but we can't always bring their explanations forward because that is not an image of God that we meet in Christ. That is an image of, of the Roman deities. That is, that is an image of gods who were about violence. And Jesus seems to be very, very opposed. So theological meanings of the cross, this is not exhaustive. I just wanna share a few things um, where, I, where I, in a very unfinished way, am currently residing when it comes to this, to this the, theology of the cross. First, I wanna say, I think Jesus um, quite literally dies because of our sins. Jesus dies because of human sin. If we go back into the book of Genesis in the early, early chapters, we find the first mention of sin is not in chapter three, where people eat fruit and, and realize they're naked and hide. It's in chapter four in the context of Cain uh, acting violently and killing his brother Abel. The first mention of the word sin in the Bible is around violence. We can say this, violence is the original human sin. Violence is the original human sin, and it is still our sin of choice in the 21st century. And the cross exposes the bankruptcy of the way empires do business, right? Because empires do business by using their weapons and using their economy to uh, benefit themselves and those in power and tend to not really care about who they're damaging in the world. Xenophobia, scapegoating, and violence, that's what killed Jesus. The idea of empire first nailed Jesus to the cross. Human violence and the thirst for power is why Christ was crucified. And we keep re-crucifying Jesus by co-opting his message and using it to harm and shame people into compliance with our systems, right? That's just the, the, what we have per, uh, perpetuated by taking this story of Jesus and making it a really good American narrative and using it to shame people into a religious system. That is, that is the anti-cross, that's not what's happening at the cross. That's, that is essentially, actually, it's, it's why Jesus gets crucified. It is, the, it is an anti-Christ approach to the story. God doesn't kill Jesus. Human violence kills Jesus. Yet somehow, somehow in the cross, we see the depth of God's love and grace on display. So maybe we put it like this. The cross isn't about divine wrath. The cross is about human wrath and how God meets that human wrath with love and grace. How does, how does God do that in Christ through the cross? About returning love for hate. Like Jesus never turns hatred on his executioners. He never turns hatred on his disciples for abandoning it. He doesn't, he does not, he does not shift and leave love behind and embrace hate. He does it by offering forgiveness to those who are executing him. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. In some ways, they know exactly what they're doing. Rome made crucifixion an art form. But the reality is they don't know what they're doing, what they believe this will accomplish, that it will protect us, that it will keep us safe from them. It's actually, it's actually not what's happening. Jesus demonstrates humanity in the face of inhumanity. In the crucified Jesus, God forever sides with the victims of human violence and brutality. In Jesus' thirst on the cross, God forever sides with all of those who thirst for justice and have not had their thirst quench. 
in the cross, God aligns God's self, just as God did through the Exodus story. When God hears the cry of the oppressed in this moment, God aligns God's self with all of those who have been so who have suffered, who've been mistreated, who've been abused, who've been oppressed, who've been marginalized, who have had their lives taken unjustly in all of the ways. We carve up the world and it benefits some and affects others. You will find God, just as Jesus told us, you'll find God with those on the margins. I love these words from Jürgen Moltmann. When the crucified Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, which is a line from Colossians, the meaning is that this is God. And this is what God is like. This is what God is like. This is what divine love looks like. This is what forgiveness, compassion, grace, mercy look like. This is a picture. If you, if you want a, an image to understand the character and nature of, the, of whatever God is, the crucified Christ is a really good place to start. This God not inflicting pain, but willing to bear it. In Christ, this God not spewing hatred, but being willing to bear the hate. And somehow that becomes a channel of love and grace in the world. I think this is why Christians, partly why they ended up using divine language for Jesus, because in him they found a kind of life and a willingness to give himself away that couldn't be held in the boxes they'd been given. We all have these theological boxes, right? And these first Christians had all of these boxes for this is what God is, and this is who we are, and this is how it works. And their experience of Jesus just exploded all of those boxes. None of their experience of the, this human life of Jesus and the divine they met there, none of that could be contained in the boxes they'd been given. The cross is not an act of divine violence. It is a picture of how the divine responds to our pain and suffering, not by moving away from it, but by moving into it and by entering into all of the complexity and messiness of it. Because that's what it means to be human. It's complex and it's messy. Right? It just is. And I had long been led to believe that God couldn't become near that. But in the cross and in Jesus, we see God engaging the complexity and the messiness of the world. And this is in so many ways what we're called to imitate, this kind of transformative love. I mean, when Jesus tells his disciples, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and follow me. I don't think they would have understood, oh, that's a really great metaphor. There were crosses everywhere. Remember 2,000 people at one time, there are crosses everywhere. They understand what Jesus is saying, that if you take seriously this call to be a boundary breaker, if you take seriously this truth that God loves everybody, no exceptions, even my enemies, even the Romans. If you take seriously that at this table, every single human being, every person who's been left out, excluded, marginalized, forgotten, they all have a seat at this table. It is their rightful place. When you begin messing with who eats with who and how the world's run and how society is structured and you start tinkering with the economy, there's going to be a cross waiting for you. I mean, I mean, that's what Jesus is warning them. If you want to follow me, be prepared because there may be a cross in your future. And yet the cross ends up being this channel of love and life and compassion and goodness to the world. I love these words from James Cone in The Cross and the Lynching Tree. It's a must read. The gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation. 
but a story about God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on the cross. What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair. The cross is a paradoxical religious symbol because it inverts the world's value system with the news that hope comes by way of defeat, suffering and death do not have the last word, and the last shall be first, and the first should be last. I mean, as we lean into next Sunday being Easter Sunday, kind of the whole Christian story is victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair. And maybe our, 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 our mission in the world looks a lot like bringing hope in the midst of defeat. And, and coming and realizing that the last should be first. And the, like this is, this is saying so that everybody who's been left out, they're going to be brought in and they're going to be given their seat. What if that, and in so many ways, that is the mission of this community. Ma- making sure that no one is left out. Making sure that everyone has their rightful seat at the table. Making sure that as we continue to think through how we're going to engage and the things we're going to be a part of as a community and the projects we're going to invest our energy and resources into, that they are going to be projects that build a more just and equitable world. That's what the cross is getting out. So I I think when Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, I think that's what he's talking about. Hope comes by way of defeat. Suffering and death do not have the last word and the last shall be first and the first last. The good news, I mean, I know that sounds hard, right? The last are going to be moved to the front and the front first to the back. They're still in line. They've just been in the front of the line for a really, really long time and everybody else is hungry too. What if we begin to see the cross as not this awkward, uncomfortable thing as progressive Christians we don't know what to do with. What if we begin to see in it that through the life of Jesus, displayed in this event, we are witnesses to the love of God in ways that we never thought possible and that we are then compelled to not put other people on crosses in the world, but to go into the world in love and compassion and seeking justice so that every single person who's thirst for justice one day will be filled so that every person who's been left out one day we'll have their seat at the table. Will, you, will we embrace this cross? Because for Jesus, this was not an isolated incident. This, he, it's not Jesus' cross and the rest of us watch him. It's will we embrace our cross and move into the world in a way that regardless of the cost, regardless of the social pressure, regardless of what people say in, to your face or on the internet, regardless of, regardless of the consequence, we are going to throw our lot with those who have been forgotten and left out. And we're going to do everything in our power to embody this cruciform love every chance we get in the world.